Luminance Insights, webinar on the future of work in the legal sector, with keynote speakers Emily Fogers and Mark Rigotti. Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily Fogers, and I'm the CEO of Luminance, which is the artificial intelligence platform for the legal profession. Um, I'm very excited to be here this morning for the first in our series of insights webinars, which are designed to continue the really important conversation about the, um, about the future of the legal profession, even though we're all currently working from home. This particular webinar, I'm going to be talking to Mark Rigotti about um, the future of work in the legal sector, which I know is a subject very close to his heart. So for those of you who don't know anything about Luminance, I'll just give you a very brief introduction to that, and then I'll introduce Mark, and then we'll get into our discussion. So Luminance um, was founded in September, in September 2015 by mathematicians from the University of Cambridge who developed the Legal Inference Transformation Engine. Light, as, which is short for that, um, is, um, is a machine which reads and understands human language by combining pattern recognition algorithms with supervised and unsupervised machine learning. It is the first true application of machine learning to the legal profession. Luminance is used by law firms and in-house legal teams all around the world, in fact, in 48 countries at the last, at the last count. Um, and what they're doing with Luminance is they're using it to improve their document review processes. So that might be M&A due diligence, it might be property portfolio lease review, um, it might be e-discovery, it might be contract review and contract negotiation. If you're interested in any of those applications, please get in touch with us. There are a number of ways you can do that. You can come to our website, which is www.luminance.com. You could also register for one of our daily demos. So throughout this period, we're doing two demos a day at four o'clock and five o'clock GMT, so that you can join no matter what time zone you're in. Um, if you register for those through the website, you'll be able to see the product in action. You could also register for the second installment of this series where we will be interviewing Dr. Mike Lynch. And then finally, um, you could contact one of our many legal product experts who can give you a live demonstration and show you the, the application of the product one-to-one. -one. Um, you can contact them through LinkedIn or again through our website. At the end of the discussion, uh, Mark and I will be opening this up for a Q&A session. So as we're discussing, please feel free to click on the Q&A button um, in the toolbar um, on Zoom and uh, log your question there, write it in the box. You can also raise your hand virtually. Um, we'll get on to that discussion once Mark and I have gone through uh, the planned conversation that we're going to have. There will also be a um, recording of this event available, um, which we can send you a link for if you'd like to share it with your colleagues. Um, please contact us at events at luminance.com if you would like a copy of that. So I'm very privileged today to be joined by Mark Rigotti. Mark is the CEO of Herbert Smith Freehills. Uh, prior to becoming CEO in 2014, Mark led the banking group, the corporate group, and then the client portfolio as managing partner. In his six years as CEO, he has, he has spearheaded the global strategy for the firm, which is called Beyond 2020. Um, he oversaw a number of different initiatives then, including eight new office openings and three closings. 
the um, rollout of the alternative legal services uh, business starting from Belfast and then very quickly moving that through China, Australia and Africa for global reach. He's also overseen more than 150 partner promotions and more than 75 lateral partner hires. Underpinning all of these achievements for Mark are three core principles. Number one, serve clients brilliantly, obsess about their needs and ask them what they need. Number two, the power and importance of caring for your people, um, finding new ways of motivating and empowering them. And finally, deliver today whilst building for tomorrow. Mark sits on numerous boards, including the European Australian Business Council and the Business Council of Australia. And he joins us today from his home in Australia, where his family have a dog called Lola, and apparently we're not allowed to ask him why that is. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for the introduction. That's fine. <laughs> um, so we're here today to discuss the future of work in the legal sector, and I know this is a subject very close to your heart from conversations that we've had previously. Um, I wondered if it would be a good idea to just start in the here and now, really. So um, what does the law firm of today look like and where is there potential for growth for lawyers in um, the adoption of technology, new business models? You know, what, what's happening now? Yeah, well, look, that, that, that's a, a great series of questions. And it's, it's interesting. And uh, I've been reflecting on some of the business um, networks I'm in at the moment. Everyone's talking about all this change that's going on. Whereas, in fact, I think a lot of the trace elements of it uh, predate COVID-19 and we're already starting to happen. And a bunch of us, we're trying to think, when's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? Uh, because it's a pretty stable business model that most law firms have. It's changed around the edges over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, it was modelled on a fellow called Paul Cravath, who started Cravath, uh, Cravaths in, in New York, and a lot of it has stayed the same. Um, but I think the changes have been creeping up on us. I am quite excited about what might actually pop out of COVID-19, but the, the changes have been really driven by three factors. Um, first, um, the needs of clients, whatever they want, they want it faster, better and cheaper. Um, secondly, the needs of the people who are in law firms, they want more flexibility and they want more purpose in their workplaces. And I think the third factor is just what's happening in society. And that's the technology developments you refer to, but also the whole ESG agenda. So how much um, potential is there for lawyers to grow? Lots of potential. If I'm honest though, the reality has been good, but not great. A lot of the change to unlock those, the, 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 the promise within those big ships that I was talking about and to embrace the technology has been piecemeal and at a varied speed. And I think um, one of the things that you need to remember about law firms is that there's a big chunk in the middle, the core business, which is doing things the same way they've done them for a while, earning very good money at good margins, keeping clients happy, developing people. And so where's the imperative to change? Um, so the short point is, I think lots of potential, maybe pre-COVID we weren't converting on the promise as quickly or as well as we should have. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, that stable business model. I'm wondering if one of the big things that's undermined 
that model actually is technology itself because the digital transformation that we've seen in the last 20 years has steamrolled through this kind of explosion in digital documentation i was talking to um a Scottish firm the other day who said that um, they had to um, extract a client document which had been accidentally emailed to them um, from the, all of their systems. Um, and they found something like, you know, just, just through that being emailed to them, nobody had opened it, nobody had done anything with it. They found sort of 250 versions of that throughout their systems, yeah. which then had to be permanently deleted. So you know, that explosion in enterprise data must really change mm. the way lawyers need to work. Absolutely, no doubt about that. And um, and if you think about that, you've got the data exponentially growing the amount of material on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got clients wanting more, faster, better, cheaper. Yeah. And then you've got people saying, well, there's more to life than just sitting in an office for 16 hours a day. You've kind of got these, this kind of these forces pulling in different directions. I think the way you reconcile it is to think about it as a Venn diagram with different kind of circles for each of those forces. And there is a really sweet spot for the organizations which can find the overlap where the technology allows you to meet the client need while making your people happier. Um, the one thing I would say though, is again, having been in law firm management for too long, 12 years now, um, most law firms form their strategy around what their clients want and what their people want. They yeah. not like, not like some other parts of the, uh, the broader economy where products or technology drive demand um, and the needs of people. Now that may change over time, but, um, but it's, it's just, it's a worthwhile dynamic to keep in mind. If, if, you, if the technology meets the client needs and the people needs, it will be adopted like night follows day. Yeah, um, I think that's right. And I think you know, law firms have been so busy that it's very difficult actually to stop and think about how you're going to adopt, adopt technology and how you're going to make that change. Um, and, and maybe you're right that this, this does represent a moment of pause for a lot of law firms where something's got to change. We've certainly had a lot of feedback from firms over the last few weeks who are saying, you know, this is the first time that we've been able to um, properly engage with the technology and had to because they have to mm -hmm. connect up with their staff no matter where they are. Um, so it's a very different environment. I think also the other thing that we see a lot of is um, the, the, different, the different ways of coping with that explosion in enterprise data you know, under the crevasse model, um, as you pointed out earlier, have been things like, um, things like sampling yeah. uh, and outsourcing um, and you know, potentially you know, digital um, extraction of language from documents. And it always seems like there's a compromise there. Look, there does, but I mean, things get better all the time. And I'm always reflecting. Um, and sometimes the thing that holds it back is not the technology or the need. It's actually the people on the other side of the, of the keyboard. And if I think about what's happening at the moment in the world that we're living at the moment, and certainly, certainly in our firm, we went from, on average, we, have two, we used to have 200 people a day working remotely from their home office out of about 4,900. Um, and we went to uh, 4,000 people working remotely in two weeks. Now, we actually kind of didn't plan for that. It sort of happened and everyone went, it actually works pretty well, you know. Um, <laughs> um, not perfect. And, you know, if you've got lots of young kids at home, there's pressures on, there's a whole lot of different issues have arisen. But if I look at that, what the last couple of months have taught us is, um, 
presenteeism gone, you know, yeah. kind of um, sort of outsourcing your problem to the help desk gone, self-help is in. So kind of all these, all these sort of fundamental shifts that were sort of what, sort of wallowing around um, what, what I would call the left-hand side of my desk. I, my right-hand side of my desk is the stuff I have to do today. The left-hand side of the desk is stuff I know I have to do, but I just don't want to get to. Background processing. Yeah, well, the, left, the left-hand side of the desk just became front and centre. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I think one of the, one of the things that are, at HSF we're trying to think about is it feels like we are in the ship sailing it while we're building it. And that's really uncomfortable for lawyers because lawyers go to law school, they're, learnt, they're taught to follow precedent, they're learnt to not take risk. And all of a sudden we're not following precedent and we're taking risk and it feels kind of weird. Um, but it's good. It's good. It, allow, it does promote a little bit more experimentation. Um, it promotes much more empowerment and pushing things down to, to the teams. And what we're actually finding is some good stuff is happening. And we have a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, a bit of a saying. Whereas before pre-COVID, there was a world where mistakes were punished. They weren't sort of seen as bad. They weren't seen as part of the learning and the experimentation process. All of a sudden, the stakes have been taken out of mistakes. Um, so it's actually okay to try some things, to try virtual drinks, or to provide you know virtual coffee um, breaks with your team as team building exercises, whatever it might be. Um, so I, I, I am. Although I was um, sort of six months ago, I would have said the future of work is is there and it's forming up, but it's a little bit like a mirage on the horizon. You see a bit of it some days when you go into the office and then other days you don't see it. It kind of feels like it's a whole lot closer now. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, the other um, sort of big sort of macro change that you talked about or mentioned earlier was ESG. Um, so environmental sustainability goals. Are you seeing those driving change for the legal profession or is that an opportunity? What, what do you see happening there? Oh, look, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm honest. It's certainly in the agenda and it's certainly in the, in the discussion. Um, you know, we, pre, again, to give a little example, one of the things that we were grappling with is our conferences. And it starts out on the premise, it's good to get people together who don't have the opportunity to work together very frequently and they can, they can do some bonding, they can learn a little bit about each other's um, businesses and they might do some technical content as well. Um, so it's a, good, it's a good thing to do. So once every two years, we have a big global partners conference and in the other, every other year, we try and have a mixture of sectors or local regions and so forth. But we were really struggling with that, and not, not from a cost basis, but just the kind of the terrible message it sends in terms of carbon, um, in terms of people jumping on planes for a few days um, um, and health and well-being. It was sort of was a whole lot of countervailing uh, factors that were sort of pulling away from the orthodoxy. This is a good thing. What can we afford this year? And sort of, well, should we really be doing this because it has all these other consequences? And I tell that story because um, I don't think we've ever, we, in that story, haven't resolved the ESG agenda, but the ESG agenda is informing the discussion. It's informing the narrative and the way I think law firms are thinking about how we work. Um, certainly, I carve an offset for all my travel. I pay that personally. Um, but it, it, does it stop me, well, pre-COVID, did it stop me sort of feeling like I needed to go to an office to see people face to face? No, it didn't. 
I think the interesting social experiment that we're in the middle of at the moment is can you actually achieve most of what you would have achieved through physical proximity by doing it virtually? I mean, the, the jury is out. Um, I think the early signs are really good that you can achieve most of that. And that would give the ESG kind of agenda a really big boost. Yeah. I mean, you know, some things are better, right? We were talking about this the other day, weren't we? I mean, we have um, humans, we have a we have a monthly um, we have a monthly ceremony at the end of the month where we celebrate the achievements of members of the team. Um, normally, what happens is most people are on a plane or in an airport lounge somewhere, and the, those who are still in the office get together. Um, they have a drink. Um, we celebrate. We hold up phones to the Cambridge office, the Singapore office, the New York office, and they get to wave down the phone. The difference at the end of March was we had a Zoom meeting with 48 people on mm. it, the whole sales force across the globe, all on a level playing field. And I said to them, you know, this is the most I've seen of you all in one place since the annual conference last June, where yeah. we all got together. And we could do this every month. And I don't know why we haven't been. This is ridiculous. So you know, there are some very good things coming out of it. And that will certainly, I think, reduce the need to travel and make that a lot saner. Um, but also on the on the ESG front, I had a really fascinating conversation with um, a partner that we work with in New York, who said that he's been looking very closely at um, ESG goals and in particular things like the equator principles, um, mm -hmm. where banks are signing up to those um, environmentally driven questionnaires about potential targets, because understanding the level of control that an organization has over its ESG agenda gives you a good insight into the level of control over the business as a whole. I yeah. thought that was really fascinating that, you know, that ESG opening up a whole new approach to due diligence, which is much more holistic in nature, I thought was a really interesting, like promising sign of the future. Yeah, look, I, I, think, I think you're right. Uh, I, I kind of go back to one of my central theses. If clients want it and the people inside a law yeah. firm, or more importantly, the people you want to join you want it, then the law firm strategy will change. It will wrap itself around those two pillars. And yeah. it does strike me that more and more clients are re requiring thoughtful responses to, to ESG um, and, and our people are as well. I think one of the, um, the interesting things around the whole COVID kind of complication that's across this, it's sort of exaggerating those trends that were or those trace elements that were already there. One of the great things that, um, or one of the things I've been was thinking about in terms of the future of work, if you sort of had to say, what's the one or two critical things a law firm or an in-house corporate department or a provider needs to get right in three, four or five years, what are those one or two critical things? And um, one for me was around flexibility. And I don't mean part-time or this, I mean, people being able to work when they want and how they work, want. Um, and agile working was, was part of that. But there are different ways. Some people want to work on collaboration platforms, others don't. And Actually, if I was designing a law firm of the future, one of the principles around that I'd be designing it around would be maximising that flexibility. Um, and part of that is mindset. Um, and part of that is, is being um, technologically enabled to, to do that. Um, so then along comes COVID and kind of, as I keep saying, this massive social experiment with no preparation is thrust upon us. And um, I think we're doing okay on that. Um, there's, there's certainly much more flexibility for people. Having said that, there's sort of a whole lot of second order things that are coming out of it. And so I was on, on with the, some of my team the other day and we're just sort of catching up. And uh, what was really interesting was that a, a bunch of the people with small children were finding it really quite difficult, to be honest. A couple of the older people like me, I've got a 21 year old at home from uni. 
um, and an 18 year old who's been laid off because of everything that's going on. But that's a very different dynamic to if you've got a couple of young kids and you're trying to keep them focused on their schoolwork and so forth. Um, so it struck me that flexibility is great, but it also comes with a bunch of second order issues that you need to think about in, in the future of work. And just, um, I guess one, one, one idea I would plant for people um, that we were playing about at HSF and I've, I've gone stronger on, is you don't actually think about what the um, future workplace is going to be like in 10 years' time and you build it now. That's, you'll get it wrong, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and, and what you actually need to do is to, as an organisation, um, and someone like HSF we were exploring this, is actually build a capability to keep redesigning the way you work, to keep re redesigning your workplace and the sort of the, the behaviours um, and the norms of which you want to inhabit it. And again, that's really, that's really threatening to law firms because they've had such stable business models. So for me, we, we were talking about trying to look out 18 months to 36 months and thinking about what we needed in that period of time. We couldn't quite get our head around it because again, we recruit you know, vacation clerks two years before they even start with us. Um, um, and you know, they're gonna be working in an environment which is different. Um, however, I do think that the, 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 the critical factor, again, around the law firm of the future or the, the organisation of the future will be having some capability which allows you to be constantly improving and tweaking um, that workplace, both the physical workplace, but also the way, the way we work. Um, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sticking a stake in the ground and saying this is what it's going to be like in five years' time and set sail to that, to that single point. Yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I think it's yeah. the flexibility question is a really interesting one. You're right. Yeah, when when my kids were really little, I remember people in Silicon Valley talking about the merge. You know, it's yeah. you know, I'm, I'm never at work, I'm never at home, I'm always sort of somewhere in between, and that would fill me with panic at the idea of kind of you know having mm. small children and having to try and do that. There was a um, there was a Financial Times poetry competition at the time where um, the competition was to come up with a six word poem to describe why we went to work. And one of the um, one of the winning entrants was to get away from their kids. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I think, you know, actually, you know, to be able to focus, you know, you, you need a different environment sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but then thinking about the law firm of the future. Um, so, you know, granted, it's difficult to see that far into the future sometimes. But do you have a picture in your mind of what that future looks like and how we get there? So, you know, first of all, you said, you know, having almost like, are you suggesting that we have interior designers employed by the firm um, to, no. to really assess No, them? no, 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 I, I wasn't suggesting interior designers, um, but nice idea, good try, Emily. Um, <laughs> it, it, I think it's more, they're probably more behavioural psychologists, which sounds very, very kind of, kind of weird. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if people actually arrived in the office in the morning and actually it was expected that you'd pause on the way in and you'd say hello, rather than rushing into your office, which you won't have in the future. Um, and wouldn't it be good if the ESG um, agenda was propagated by saying there will be no paper in the office, no paper, zero. Um, uh, so I, I, think, um, I think the law firm of the future will be thinking about those sorts of issues and how to manage the change from wherever you are to that future state. Um, so that, you know, that we can probably spend a little bit more time on that, but I, I was struck by, um, by sort of a team from some of the consulting firms where they've got a very interesting uh, approach, this, this one firm. Um, they have a culture where you're expected to be out of the office. If you're in the office, that means you're not busy. And if you're not busy, that's not good. 
So everyone comes back on Friday, but otherwise you are out with clients. And if you're not on a client project, then you should be at one of the universities tooling up on something. So it was all about being out of the office and being busy out of the office. Um, and it was, I just think it was such a different kind of approach to the traditional law firm, which is being in the office, putting time on timesheet. I could see a law firm of the future where lawyers are working alongside their clients physically or virtually. Um, and then actually the office is actually kind of an anchor to come back to on occasion, but you're sort of almost on these bungee jumps out to various different things all the time. Almost like being on secondment with your clients so that you're yep. with them when you're with them. Yeah. yeah. Some of the some of the best client experiences I've had are being in um deal rooms down with investment banks, you know, you know, three weeks out from the bid date, um, working night and day. And uh, I've probably learned more there than just by just by being around um, and seeing how they put their deals together than actually anything I could read in a book or, in a or, or pick up in a classroom. Right. Okay. So that, yeah, so that kind of flexibility could be very powerful, couldn't it? And mm. I wonder as well whether there's um, an angle here for, um, for diver diversity. Um, I've been talking a lot to yeah. Christina Butler's, um, who was president of the Law Society, about her driving agenda, which was, you know, why is it that the, the majority of trainees, listers coming onto the market in the UK every year are women, and then by the time you get to partner level, the ratio has completely shifted. Um, you know, is there something that can be done to address that, um, that disparity and what happens there? Oh, well, no, no doubt there could be, although I think you've probably got, it's like, not even just gender, but any other any other um, um, any other group. If it's not if it's not attractive or it's not positive for people to be in that particular environment, and it's too hard for them to stay, they won't stay. And even worse, if it's not welcoming, to start with they won't even turn up. So you don't even know that you're losing them. Um, I was really struck by um, um, I got a phone call from a client, and she was a female non-executive director around town. She rang to say, "Look, I'm just telling you." Don't want you to intervene, but my goddaughter um, uh, um, qualified from Russell Group University, first class honours, wanted to be a lawyer. She went onto your website to apply for a job, but she is of Caribbean extraction and she found it just intimidating to answer the questions that the computer was throwing up as the initial screening. And I said, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> what was even worse, we'd actually just gone through it to try and improve it. But it just brought home the point that that person didn't even get onto our radar because they self-selected out. So I, I, I think we can do some things, but it doesn't, it doesn't start with keeping people. It starts with making it an environment where people feel that they can come and, and take their careers forward. Then once they're there, well, you know, there's been loads and loads written about this. Um, and flexibility and more technology-enabled working does seem to me to level the playing field a lot because it takes out a lot of the very established um, kind of norms and behaviours that happen in an office environment. It allows people to 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 be to be assessed on their outputs um, um, and what they contribute. So I could see the office of the future being much better for um, for, for 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 encouraging diversity. Having said having said all of that, one of the things that um, some of the people in our firm are mentioning in the current environment and some of the people that were working with a high degree of agility before um, was that they were missing out on what, what, what is called the bump factor and the bump factor is where you walk down the corridor and i'd see you emily saying oh 
what are you working on? And you say, I'm working on this. And I say, oh, that's interesting. I've got a few issues. And all of a sudden, you've got this kind of 10-minute kind of mini coaching conversation in an, um, an unscheduled and unstructured way. It, it is much harder to get those kind of, that, that, that sort of bump factor, um, that knowledge transfer, those, those coaching conversations to happen if you just don't have some degree of physical proximity. Now, I guess you could recreate it virtually. Um, <laughs> we could all put our, we could also all put our headsets on and um, a, a bit like that company in the States, it's a listed real estate company, which is completely augmented reality, um, do everything on it. Um, but that's hard, that's a big shift for law firms. So. Uh, a long, long way of saying, I think, um, uh, that the workplace of the future should encourage greater diversity, but I think it'll also expose some things that we actually quite like in the current environment, which are hard to replicate in newer, in newer environments. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, that bump factor is not to be underestimated, is it? Um, no. I work for an organisation which was primarily made up of home workers, and the sense of alienation that results from, you know, from yeah. not having that shared yeah. environment is huge. Um, yeah. And the other end of the spectrum, yeah, obviously, we spend a lot of time with law firms um, all around the world. Uh, and um, in particular, in Scandinavia, I'm always struck by mealtimes. Right. Um, you know, going to the canteen, you know, assuming I was going to pick up a sandwich and actually finding that the table's laid. <laughs> and, you yeah. down, and you sit down with somebody you don't know. Um, and that's by design that you sit down with somebody you don't know and you eat together and then you go back to your desk. So reconciling the huge value in that kind of environment and the opportunity for collaboration that that brings very naturally with the flexibility of never being in the office. We have to balance this at Luminance all the time because I'm, you know, I have to have exactly that mentality, which is I don't want to see the sales team in the office ever. Don't want you yeah, ever. Yeah. But sometimes we need to see each other, otherwise we lose touch. Mm. So balancing those things, I think is probably the hardest thing at the center of this. I, I think so, but it, it, it's interesting if the mindset is around um, great client service and happy people, and we're going to achieve that in the most flexible way possible, seems to me issues like the bumper factor become second order issues, which can be resolved with a bit of positive intent. Where you run into strife is, no, I want you next, sitting next to me at veil my beck and call etc etc resentments building because that person needs to get home for the plumber or to pick up the kids from kindergarten or whatever so if you create a flexible workplace and you support it with a flexible mindset kind of seems to me there'll always be problems there'll always be issues nothing's perfect but you're better able to attack them than if you've got a more fixed mindset which boxes you into a narrower range of solutions yeah. why, why would you do yourself out of the broadest range of solutions or options that possible. Uh, I don't get that. So, so um, in a minute, anyway. we should open this up to, um, to, to Q&A, but before we do, I wonder if you'd be prepared to just give me your vision. So for an HSF lawyer in 2022, yeah. what would a typical day look like? The law yeah. firm in the future. So, so I've got a confession to make now. Um, <laughs> um, Emily did say she would, um, she would, uh, she, she would ask me this question. And I have an English major, uh, my 21-year-old, who's at Durham University, gave me a little bit of help. So I've prepared something and I'll, I'll read it out and we'll sort of see what the, the, the people online think of it and they can give us some feedback. We did I guess if I... That, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we throw forward to 2022, what's, what, what does a day in the life of a HSF lawyer look like? Well, first of all, she wakes up 
And that's always a good start because if you don't wake up, then you've got a major problem. She then checks her messages and her AI augmented Outlook program sorts all of those emails by importance and relevance to what's on her task list at the moment. Even better, it prepares drafts for quick response communications and they sit in her drafts box and she dispatches 50 responses in five minutes and there's no typos. Um, then it's time for some exercise, but before she goes, she has her 25 social media accounts to check. So she hits her search and destroy button and it attacks and destroys 80% of the meaningless messages and gives her an hour back in the day. So she's off to the gym and she's sitting in her isolated pod since the COVID crisis of 2020, the gym floor now has isolation pods, which can only be used by one person at a time. On more than 50% of her working days, she works out of a small office in her home. It's well equipped, it's got a sit-stand desk, excellent interconnections, internet connections. She has three in case one goes down. And just a posterity state, she has a small antique printer from 2018 that she keeps for sentimental reasons. There's no paper or ink in the printer. Her own office also has a massive screen for Zoom meetings. Zoom has become the largest company in the world, having acquired Google, Apple, and Amazon in the last four years. All the regulators wanted broken up, um, but President Zuckerberg is resisting those demands. However, today's Wednesday, and her team has a Wednesday club. It's a day when they all go into the office and they get together. On the way in, she has to hand over all her devices for cyber checking. It's found of her seven devices, six are cleared, but one is found to be hacked and it's detained for deep cleansing. Slightly annoyed, she makes her way to the area where she and her team have been placed for the day. It's all white, there's a slight odor of bleach pervading the environment because everything's cleaned down every night. Team members arrive and reconnect and that's expected. They have a morning tea for birthday cake and the like, and they have afternoon compulsory training. She had to get through a lot and she works with both her immediate team and people around the globe and she uses various collaboration tools to make that happen. She reflects how far the technology has come since the great pandemic of 2020. The latest Apple Zoom products have even removed the control alt delete function. As the day draws close to an end, she heads off home. She's informed by the cybersecurity guards that her detained device has been destroyed. She's given a replacement device fully configured for her preferences she knows that all her data is backed up five times a day and stored by Facebook. What could go wrong? Tomorrow is Thursday. She sighs. She'll work from her, own, her, her home office, but she will have a 4 a.m. start. And that's because she's attending a virtual meeting originating from Asia. Travel for business is very infrequent nowadays, but the cost of that no travel is being available to work at any hour of the day. But she doesn't mind because she's taking Friday off. She's taking her daughter, Siri, to the Great Pandemic Museum, built as recognition for the health workers who toiled selflessly during 2020, and to the scientists who discovered the COVID vaccine, which was released on Christmas Day in 2020. It was the best Christmas present she ever received. So that's, the, uh, that's a day in the life of the HSF lawyer in 2022. Thank you very much. That's excellent. Um, so we've got a couple of questions coming in now um, from the participants. We've got a couple of hundred people um, on the line. First question comes from Alvaro, 
who says, how relevant is accessibility to technology in order to really achieve the described goals and results from co collaboration, new behavior and effective space management? Is it relevant to live in a third world country? Um, or the basics of these great topics can be achieved notwithstanding less technological development. Mark, um, do you have a view? Is, is technology important to achieving these goals? Yeah. Um... Oh, look, look, it is. I actually think it's not only technology, it's the attitude that you bring to it. Um, so uh, we, we, I was just on a call just before this. We had people from Spain, we had some people in South Africa. Um, and frankly, you know, the technology was good enough. Um, uh, where, we, where we find it hard is people who don't want to embrace uh, the promise that the technology can bring. Um, now, having said that, um, Alvaro, I, I don't live in a third world country, so I don't have all the problems of um, inadequate broadband um, or low speed broadband and all of those kind of infrastructure type issues. I um, kind of think though that where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and so those things should be, those things should be at least accessible and we can get part of the way there. As I say, I have more problems with my partners in London who just don't want to change than I do with my partners in, on a tarmac in an in a airport in remote China. Um, trying to sort of dial into a Zoom meeting on their on their phone, um, their disposable phone. Um, so I, I kind of think attitude is probably more important than than geography, to be honest. I mean, I Emily, would, what do you think? I would completely agree with that, um, and I think that really chimes with the early experience um, of Luminance. So when we launched in 2016, I said to my children, you know, I won't be travelling as much in this job because most of my clients will be in London, and I couldn't be more wrong. You know, within a few months, we had clients in Nairobi, Sao Paulo, Sydney, Singapore, mm. all around the world. And I think there is, you know, you talked at the beginning of this conversation about how stable the legal business model is, but stability and flexibility don't necessarily go together. <laughs> so I think those, those jurisdictions where um, you maybe haven't had the benefits of, the, of being early adopters of technology, that does give you the chance to leapfrog. Yep. Um, and we see that all the time. I mean, we see that with uh, you know, mobile phones on the Ind Indian subcontinent, for example. You know, people who never had a desktop TV um, go straight for an, straight for the iPhone um, within a generation. Um, so, so I think being, you know, whether it's in a third world country or um, or just in a you know, in a jurisdiction that doesn't embrace technology so quickly can actually be um, be an advantage as the technology becomes ready. I think there's a real thing about maturity of technology. Yeah. In the early days, technology is expensive when it first comes along and it takes a lot of time to deploy and it takes expertise to deploy. And then as time goes on, you know, you get technology like Apple devices, which a two-year-old can use. And then suddenly all you need is a decent broadband connection and maybe not even that to make them work. So I do think, Alvaro, I do think in answer to your question from my point of view, there's a leveling of the playing field that's going on at the moment um, in the legal profession where the most stable markets are not necessarily at, an, at such an advantage when flexibility is key. Um, and that really changes the dynamic. I mean, I would add, look at, and I, I recognize that two, two things that worry me about um, the sorts of things that Alvaro has raised are cybersecurity and, um, and I guess, you know, deliverability. Um, you know, to give you, to give you a horrifying statistic, HSF globally has 63 firewalls. We have six and a half million attempts on those firewalls a day, a day. Um, and you can have wonderful collaboration technology in advanced geographies or non-advanced geographies or leapfrogging 
geographies, but I do worry about the cyber threat. Um, um, and those collaboration technologies really speed up things and promote innovation, but they're kind of a little bit more open source um, than sitting in a, sitting in a conference room <laughs> uh, with the door shut talking with three people. So I guess the, the cyber piece is probably a little bit of a, um, a threat to, to that. And you could see for people who are a little bit, a bit hesitant about stepping into that future, if they have a bad experience because of a cyber attack, there's going to be more reason why they, why they won't. And then look, deliverability, I think is, um, um, it's probably a heresy to say on this call with Emily and her team here, that, you know, um, vendors delivering on the promise sometimes is, is, is you know, sometimes a bit of overselling um, um, because they're enthusiastic about the product and particularly then the people buying it expect it to solve all the problems of the world. It was never going to, but that's kind of the, the myth they build around it. So um, they would be maybe two sort of slight handbrakes on that development, I think. I, I think that's right. I mean, we certainly see that syndrome in the market and we, we call it AI fatigue, actually, where you know, we come across firms who've been early adopters um, and you know, tried something which has ended up costing them a lot of money and a lot of effort. And then we come along and say, here's a better way. And they're not interested because actually they've already been, been down this route and, you know, they've, mm. and they've been burned. Um, so I think, you know, again, I think that does point to the, you know, the emerging markets being somewhere where you can be more free to experiment, yeah. potentially. True, um, true. We've got another question here um, coming in from Domino, um, who asks, um, what experience or spatial qualities do you think we will experience in the legal workplace of the future? Um, well, it's nice to hear from Domino. She's an old friend. We've worked together in the past. Look, I, I don't know. I think there are so many different permutations out there. I think there's no doubt. In fact, our board at HSF were just discussing it today. Um, we're, we're taking a view. We, we just don't think law firms in the future will need the same amount or the same type of space. Now, whether that applies to other organisations, I'm not sure, but I imagine it would. Having said that, you can imagine a future, for example, particularly in the next few years, where governments might say you can have half your workforce back into the office. Um, but the other half you can't because you've got to clean it and that you do it even you do odds and even days on and off so you actually might need more space but it has to be capable of being cleaned and etc etc you might say that's kind of a bit of a silly scenario but that was one of our real estate partners in London was saying um, some clients are looking at, at, at that sort of space interestingly I think the whole we work sort of um, sort of phenomena must be called into question now um, given the need for social distancing and the like. Um, so um, if I was, if I, I hate to be beating the same drum, but flexibility would be one of the key things I think um, we'll need in our spatial qualities. Um, and I also think um, we're going to need something which uh, is, you can turn on and turn off and that's technology, but also if I think about how quickly we, we got out of our offices this time round, you know, what's to say another pandemic might, might not come along in three or four winters time. So yeah, flexibility and an ability to turn, turn your space on and off and be less, less sort of rigid, I guess, less would be, uh, would be the main things. Yeah. Um, what are yeah. you thinking about Emily? Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I think that's right. It's hard to imagine it though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, yeah, yes, you know, why do I need 50 desks for 50 salespeople? They should be out with clients all the time. You know, we shouldn't need all of that space. 
on the other hand you know not having that physical interaction that physical space mm. is a horrifying prospect i mean you know it's just human nature isn't it to want to yep. congregate in the coffee bar yep. <laughs> um, how do you have a birthday celebration if everyone's got to stand two and a half meters away it kind of just doesn't feel kind of right does it so i guess we're going to have to sort of see what comes down because um, you know, I think we're all thinking that we're in a period of time where all of this is temporary. What if it's not? What if 20, 30, 40% of all these rules become the rules of the future? It kind of dramatically changes um, things like space quite a lot, um, which is why I keep coming back to flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. Um, who, who's going to know? Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, being involved in a startup about um, 15 years ago where we stayed up late one night trying to figure out the rotor, who should be there to shut the door, um, lock up at the end of the And we never needed it. We never, we, never, we never locked up. There was always someone there 24-7 for the next you know, however long. So yeah, you can really overplan for these things. Um, but yeah, but the idea of these rules becoming the norm is, is pretty horrifying. Um, a new question has come in from Lottie who says, how can we overcome hostility to change? Can law firms le learn from flagship disruptors such as Uber? Well, I think whoever can answer this question is going to make an obscene amount of money <laughs> by, writing, <laughs> by writing a book and becoming a consultant. Um, and look, and I guess it, there's, it, I guess my my experience on that is um, uh, if people can see a future that is better, they're more likely to reach towards it. But if all they can see is threat and a future that is worse, because um, the future is different, it's always going to be different, um, and you've got to change to get to the future. If it's better, you'll go for it. If it's worse, um, then how, how do you get past it? Could law firms learn from some flagship disruptors such as Uber? I, I think so. I, I was privileged to spend a week in um, Silicon Valley at a place called Singularity University earlier this year. And it was a really, they deliberately mix up the people on this course. So we had kind of Mexican filmmakers and we had, um, you know, had some Italians who were very successful startup entrepreneurs through to people. We actually had the guy, an English general, who's actually the deputy um, commander-in-chief of NATO, sort of, you know, kind of had a very kind of structured sort of environments. And what was interesting was that was the commonality. And I guess some of the disruptors, if, if it really came down to two things that they do differently to more traditional organisations, one was a growth mindset, actually being, a, actually being able to believe, honestly believe and prosecute um, a series of actions based on you can be better tomorrow than you can be today. Um, and it's all about the future, not about the, the past. Um, and the second is this, this whole idea of trying to bring a level of innovation into just the way you do things. And again, if you think of law firms, they've sort of started to embrace innovation, but it tends to be this funny little group wearing black t-shirts in the corner, probably out of a bank or maybe out of a tech company. Um, whereas in fact, if you look at some really amazing um, uh, companies, that have really embraced this. Innovation is just kind of this gene. It's just wrapped around what they do. They're always thinking about innovating. And they, yes, they may have some formal structures to bring ideas to commercialization. So yeah, growth mindset and, and, and kind of making innovation kind of another strand of your DNA would be the, the things I, again, if you were able to design a law firm from start, they would be the sort of things I'd be trying to bring in 
And certainly at HSF, we, we, we did have, in our strategy, we had five areas. One of them was called innovation and technology. And, but we actually put that in that order in purses, in per, on purpose, innovation and technology. And the objective with the innovation stream was to try and promote more of an innovation culture. Um, you know, we've got Innovation 10, which is 10 days per year for anyone who wants to volunteer to work on an innovation project. Um, what was really interesting about the volunteers, um, we kind of had a couple of hundred straight away, and then we had a couple of people, number of people who probably didn't even open the email. Um, which sort of tells you a little bit about the sort of the journey to a culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, you talk about the people in black t-shirts. I, you know, I, I always have this vision in my mind of the, the scientists in the tower and chitty chitty bang bang. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. Where the king gets all the best scientists in the land and locks them in a tower and then forgets that they're there. And then when they yeah, emerge, yeah. they've got beards down to their ankles and they're still working on something that everyone's forgotten about. Yeah. It's really yeah, yeah, yeah. With that, right? Um, <laughs> But then I think, you know, the hostility to change thing, I think, you know, Uber obviously have experienced that, you know, in a very sort of, you know, in a very sort of physical way um, from black cab drivers in London, certainly. Um, but at the end of the day, you've just got to focus on your client, right? You know, I mean, I think, you know, all taxi drivers have got to think, you know, at the end of the day, this is about what the customer wants. And if the customer doesn't yeah. want traveling for change in their purse at two o'clock in the morning, then you need to listen to that and change will come as a result of it, right? Okay, um, so uh, another one in from Robert. So Robert says, when the pandemic ends and people can go back to work, um, what will HSF do to use the opportunity to fix um, fix past inefficiencies and drive things in new directions? Yeah, well, that's a that's a really great question. I think um, I think that's that's something that we are debating at the moment. And um, the, the way I would think of it is a little bit like this. It, it, most crises unfold in a particular way, but there's kind of three stages. There's, um, there's the immediate response, um, the triage thing. Then there's the recovery and then there's reform. And people tend to think, um, in my experience anyway, in that very linear way, there's these three deliberate kind of sections. And it's always struck me that there's a wasted opportunity. Your reform should start the day the crisis starts. You should actually be doing your immediate response. Your tactical response should be with one eye to make sure you triage the situation, but with another eye thinking around how is this going to make us a better, more vibrant organisation in six weeks, six months, you know, two years when we come out of this. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do at HSF at the moment is not just think about now we're doing all the things you'll read in legal business or the lawyer. Um, you know, there's no new new ideas. We're trying to think how does it actually fix fit into what we would be trying to do strategically in the long term. Um, uh, and, you know, so for 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 example, we have been trying to think about how we restructure our secretarial base because again, very old model. Um, a number of them are really talented, yet they're doing jobs that are that they're way past. Um, others are not busy enough. Um, and it probably needs to be a little bit more hierarchical with a bit more of a career structure for them rather than all being sort of a bit more homogenous. Um, this is giving us an opportunity to think about that, to get secretaries maybe, you know, as other people leave different jobs filling in for, on, in HR or knowledge or different um, parts of the firm. So um, we are trying to use the opportunity to, to, to fix past tensions and inefficiencies um, by weaving it into both the short-term tactical response and not leaving it to when things have, have stabilised 
and you can think about reform. It's very, very hard to do um, as a leader, but because you're sort of um, trying to juggle off that, it's kind of like those, um, you know, you've seen those sort of artists um, in China and Asia where they've got all the spinning plates and they're running between all the different kind of, kind of uh, sticks that, are, that they're spinning furiously to keep the plates turning. That's what you're trying to do as a leader. And then someone comes along and says, well, kind of you need to think about um, what, what plates you're going to replace, which ones do you want to keep, which ones will you let smash, etc. So um, the one thing, as I say, we are doing is think, trying to think about reform in the future, but start it now, not wait for the, not, not wait for the response and the recovery phases. Um, specifically, it's probably around, um, well, I think we're getting there very quickly in terms of take up on tech. It's been amazing how quickly people have changed. And if I said, you know, if I sort of said six months ago, oh, we could halve the size of our help desk. I think we've got about 75 people on our help desk. We could halve the size of our help desk. Um, people would have thought I was crazy. They'd be saying, no, tech's going to be more important. We need a bigger help desk. But in fact, if you help people who are the users to be more self-sufficient, then you can actually have much more of a solve-as-you-go approach rather than waiting for a problem and they've got to ring the help desk. Um, so interestingly, um, calls to the help desk have dropped through, through the pandemic, and that's one very tangible way those, a lot of those technicians and those engineers can be released into doing much more value-added work rather than sitting at the end of the phone waiting for someone to ring them and give them a hard time for a problem they didn't create. That's actually amazing. I think it would have been very hard to predict that outcome. So oh. everyone home and help desk calls go down. Yes. I mean, people are self-solving, you know. People are actually reading the, you know, work-from-home tip um, or finding it on the internet rather than, you know, automatically dialing 6666. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I, I think you know, we've, we're, we're definitely seeing the same thing. You know, we're, you know, at Luminance, we're busier than we've ever been because our customers are you know, actually realising that they can do their due diligence better if they're collaborating through the technology than they were, than they used to do it when there was a you know, metaphorical just pile of documents and you're working through yeah. it on the desk. Um, people are able to be more flexible. Um, they actually engage with the technology because they have to now. Um, there's, no, there's no fallback in, 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 in the form of somebody sitting at the desk, desk next to them and then they're finding all the efficiencies. So that's, yeah, we're definitely seeing that. Um, and then another question here, which is from Mauro who says, um, how do we think artificial intelligence can impact law firms that operate in the litigation field? How can artificial intelligence? Is that a, is that a, a secret question about how artificial intelligence can replace litigators? <laughs> I don't know. Mauro, are you prepared to comment on that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose my immediate reaction to that is yeah. any, any lawyers who need to read stuff um, yeah. can helped by artificial intelligence because all it's going to do is help you read that stuff a lot faster and I think in the US certainly we see in New York a lot less hostility to AI than we do in some other markets because they've been there with e-discovery for a long time right you know technology yep. reviews have existed for a long time so they look at our technology and it's just you know yep. an improvement on that um I don't know whether there's anything more specific to litigation or you know whether yeah, well I, I can give two things we've been thinking a bit about this. There's definitely being able to process um, quantity at speed, which is enhanced by AI way beyond what you could ever do with just human capability. So that kind of volume at, at, and quality simultaneously at speed, um, big tick. 
Um, the second thing we have found is um, it's allowed us to, um, I guess, get a bit more forensic and um, we, we've got a program that allows us to determine the prospects. So if you're doing a big due diligence, you're doing a big discovery, that's obviously for, 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 for your court proceedings, but it's also informing your prospects discussion with your client. You should settle, when should you settle, how you should settle. We are finding AI is helping with that. Um, it can analyze the information from different angles. Um, it learns as it goes. Um, it doesn't have fatigue <laughs> like, um, like some lawyers do on, on large cases. So there's also a piece around prospects. And the third thing is probably not so relevant to litigation, but to commercial transactions um, is around de-risking things or at least helping clients understand the risk profile better. And typically that's around drawing connections between different parts of a body of documents that is very hard because a traditional due diligence is chunked down and you'll have your real estate specialist reading those documents and someone else reading the employment contracts and so forth. Where's the horizontal piece across it that looks for the risk mitigants or the risk accelerants um, in the data? And we find AI has been very helpful for our, our private equity clients who, who actually want to take on risk because that's how they drive superior returns. They really want to understand it and they are much more interested in the horizontal connections than they are in the vertical depth. So uh, that, that's, I don't know if that makes sense, but we have found, you know, um, yeah, well, private equity in particular, very interested in this risk augmentation that you can get through the application of AI to data. Yeah, and they're, they're interesting, aren't they? Because they will actually say, look, we don't really want to do due diligence. <laughs> what they mean by yeah. that is they don't want to look at all the change of control clauses. They want to really understand you know, the essence of that business and that's, a, and that's a different thing. And AI can support that Correct. through those volumes of documentation in a way that humans yeah. on their own would just take too long for the kind of speed. Oh, and, and, and they don't want people to read documents for three weeks to come up with two extra warranties. They want to understand the risk profile, which they will build into their bid price and they'll negotiate on. It's just a different way of thinking. So what they need is different to maybe a trade buyer who wants to understand everything because everything's important to them. Whereas for private equity, what's important to them is price and return. And there'll be unknown unknowns. And, you know, and how do you understand those? Yeah, that, that, that's where AI plays a huge part, I think. Um, in, in litigation, yeah, uh, absolutely. I think yeah, you've still got to read a lot of documentation. That's, um, that, that's where this helps. Okay, I then got a question which is um, from Steve, um, which is definitely one for Mark. How do, do you think the leadership of the firm is harder in crisis or without crisis? When, yeah. you, need, when you need to create a narrative rather than responding to circumstances? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, look, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I I I actually think well, my experience is, is that in a crisis you get a slightly more forgiving audience. Um, it goes to this whole idea of taking mistakes out of mistakes. So the bumbled communication, provided it's heartfelt, is is kind of waved through. So a, a crisis is incredibly stressful, particularly where there are people decisions to be made. Um, um, but it's also easier in some respects. So, for example, um, we have a great client. They're giving us a lot of work. They're in a lot of trouble, but they just never pay us. Um, and the crisis comes along. We say, look, fine. But, you know, we know it's, you know, um, this is not, this pay, payment is not your strong suit, but we can't act for you if you don't pay us. Because if you don't pay us, we have to sack some people and we don't want to sack those people. So, um, you know, and within two weeks, that, kind of behavior on their part is sorted out. 
the relationship is much better. The, everyone knows kind of the, the, the guardrails under which we're operating. So I, I'm probably in the camp that managing in a crisis is slightly easier because you get to you get to you get to um, you get to positions much quicker. To the point around narrative, you've got to be unbelievably consistent in a crisis because people are when people are confronted with threat. Um, you know, it's just the way we're all way we're all built. They'll fight or they'll flight. They'll fly or they'll freeze. Um, and the job of a leader is to move them from paralysis to productivity. So a really consistent narrative is is critical. Um, uh, and I know my, my successor Justin is doing a great job on it. He's got four principles, and that's he just sticks to them all the time. Are those four principles the sort of stuff that are going to be in a Harvard Business case study? Who knows? But for the people that are hearing it, they 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 hear a familiar drumbeat, and that is quite reassuring, and they can kind of get back to to doing what they do well, which is serving clients. So um, I think we've got one last question um, before we wrap up, which is coming from an anonymous attendee who would like to know how we see the future of court proceedings. The online litigation process will take shape at a slower pace than the pace of online of the online process for solicitors. Um, look, hard to know. It sounds like it's Richard Susskind trying to um, advertise his latest book. He's, 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 he's written, look, he's doing a lot of thinking about online courts. Um, um, and this is not a topic I know a lot about. Um, I've got to think it's got to be faster. It's just, it just it, there must be an ability to simplify and cut out inefficiencies. But look, it's not something that I'm familiar with. But if Richard was here, I'm sure he'd be able to give you a much more cogent answer. I mean, Emily, you might have some experience on this one. This is outside my experience zone, I'm afraid. It's outside my experience zone. It's a question that we get asked a lot by journalists. And um, um, and I think you know, my, my view on this is I think there's a line in the use of artificial intelligence where um, decisions should not be made by machines. Fundamentally, mm. you know, decisions should be made by human beings who have experience and who have qualifications and who are regulated and all the rest of it. Um, and I think you know, my view on this is if you feel as if you're relinquishing control to a machine and you're nervous about that and you feel as if you're giving up some of your um, some of what you would normally do, don't do that. And I would have thought for online litigation, there are probably harder questions around that than there are in corporate law at the moment. And so therefore, maybe it will actually be a slower process rightly because you've got to take baby steps towards it. Um, mm. You know, the, we have two principles when we're running a pilot for our customers at Luminance. One, the first one is we will make you work a hell of a lot faster, but the second one is faster is no good if you don't have confidence in the outcomes of what yes. you're presenting. So if, we, if you're faster but you've lost confidence because you can't see what you're doing, that's no good. You've got to have both of those things. Um, that confidence is about control, it's about transparency, visibility, understanding what's happened at least as well as you would do ordinarily with a pile of papers on your desk. So online court proceedings, decision-making based on precedent by algorithms, we know the mm -hmm. horror story, we know how wrong that can go. So I should think there will be blind alleys there that will be pulled back from. Yeah. Yep. Just a guess. Right. Okay, I think, uh, I think that's it on the questions. Thank you very much, everybody, for attending. We had a huge amount of people on the call today. Um, so really great to see you all. We had to upgrade Zoom um, to accommodate everyone. So thanks, everybody, for turning up. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, yeah, please, um, if you would like a recording of this, um, of this presentation, please email events at luminance.com, and we'll send you through a link. 
Um, also, there are daily, um, daily demonstrations, um, which you can register for. The next in this series will be an interview with Dr. Mike Lynch. And thank you so much, Mark, for your time and, um, and for all of the thought that you've put into this session. It's been a real privilege talking to you. Well, thank you for involving me and everyone. Um, let's